We'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can find that on page 809 in the uh, Bibles that we have here in the gym. It'll also The Bible reading will also be on the screen if you want to follow along that way. Good morning, everybody. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Thanks, Christine. I'm going to keep the Bible open in front of me. I'd really love to encourage you to do the same. I've also asked Joel, just if he doesn't mind, to uh, keep take us back to the start of that chapter as we work through this. This is a really meaty chapter and uh, there's a whole lot in this for us and rather than try and 
jump around and break it up. We're just going to work our way through it and see what God has to say to us in the midst of all of this. So how about I pray for us as we do that together? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good day, this day of your blessing to us, that you give us life and breath and indeed the joy of being able to gather together now. Thank you that you speak to us through your word. You speak in a way that cuts across uh, the busyness of our life and that cuts into the depths of our hearts as you teach us more of who you are and more of what you've done for us in Christ. So we pray that you would help us to listen with deep humility and a great appreciation for the privilege of hearing your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, you'll see that there's a very brief outline in the leaflet that you've got there, which is essentially built around three questions taken from the three big chunks of this passage. And I really want to begin with a fairly simple question to ask you, where are you from? See, we'll all recognise how our culture impacts the things we think are important. A number of years ago, I was a medical student at the Adelaide, uh, University of Adelaide and part of my studies, I did a placement in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, in an incredibly remote part of Papua New Guinea, um, with no vehicle access to the surrounding towns. One of the things that uh, the missionary doctor that I was working with got me to do was to go on a four-day foot patrol around to some of the surrounding villages. And myself, one of the local doctors, a porter carrying some medical supplies, someone to translate for us, and off we went into the jungle for four days. It was an incredible experience. I'm not sure that as a fifth-year medical student I was of that much benefit to the locals, but they were nonetheless very appreciative. And along the way, they were very kind to give us little gifts, kind of recognising their thankfulness to us. Uh, One of those gifts was apparently, great treasure, we were hearing about treasure this morning, of some ground fowl eggs. I don't know if you can picture those birds that don't fly, they just run around in the bottom of the jungle, make a pile of dirt to lay their eggs in. In Australia, we had the mallee fowl, similar kind of thing, just picture it in the rainforest. Turns out their eggs are a great delicacy because they're quite hard to find. The challenge of them is, though, because they're laid in the wild, you never know whether they've been fertilised, and if they have been, how far off hatching they are. So anyway, we're cooking up this great delicacy of ground fowl eggs and it starts off pretty well as the first couple go in the pot, make some scrambled eggs, this is looking pretty good and then we crack one in there that there's a, there's a squirming, wriggling chick in the muck. Well, turns out that my face demonstrated all of my cultural assumptions as I kind of looked at this and went, oh my goodness... All of my friends, they were looking at it going, yes, this is brilliant. Turns out the more mature the chick is, the greater the delicacy. And while my stomach was turning, they were getting quite excited. You see, where we come from impacts what we think is important. On a more serious note, uh, earlier this year at Trinity Church Adelaide, we launched a Mandarin gathering because in God's kindness, he's brought loads of Mandarin speakers, Chinese background people from right across Southeast Asia, And we've recognised how much culture and especially language impacts the way we learn and apply the gospel. The gospel is universally true and and the truth is unchanging. But there are cultural assumptions that impact the way that we need to be challenged on or, or encouraged in different aspects of life. And praise God that the Mandarin gathering has been growing and God is using it to bring people into his kingdom. But I think we all know that where we come from impacts what we think is important. And Paul is helping the Corinthians throughout this book, but perhaps especially in chapter 6, to recognise many of the assumptions that they have 
that, that they need to be challenged in. And it turns out that, well, we share a number of them with them to one extent or another. And so we're going to dive straight in and, as I said, work through this to get our heads around what's going on. And so if we begin in verse 1, Paul is presenting a scenario, a hypothetical. Verse 1, he says, If you have any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? And at this point, Paul presents a hypothetical that they're taking to each other to court. So hypothetically, you have a dispute with someone at church, you'd sue them. But by the time we get to verse 6 and 7, we see that this isn't just a hypothetical situation. In verse 6, it's not an if, this is what they are doing. In verse 7 and 8, we read that they feel wronged, they feel cheated. And then, in fact, they're actually taking each other to court to try and get one back on the other. Now, a little bit of context helps us to understand what's going on here in this hypothetical that is actually real for this community of people in Corinth. You see, the Roman legal system was notoriously corrupt. It wasn't just about the cash bribe paid to the judge, but it was actually the whole idea of the power and influence of the parties involved, with the court generally finding in favour of the one who could bring the most social benefit. So the poor and the lowly, they rarely took a case to court because they're on a hiding to nothing. They were almost guaranteed to lose. And so those doing the suing are the rich and the powerful. Well, they've been slighted in some way, who knows? Paul doesn't give us the detail, but it's very clear that they know they're taking their opponents to the cleaners which sounds, at the very least, fairly unkind. But it's more than just unkind. As Paul points out for them, their mistake is much more fundamental than that. They've forgotten where they live. Joel, can you take us back to verse 2, please? Let me to read verse 2. Paul says to them, Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And you might be sitting here thinking, no, I didn't know that. Interesting thought. Well, it's an idea that comes from a number of verses in the Old Testament where it describes the people of God exercising rule and authority in the kingdom of God. And Jesus seems to affirm this when he speaks to his disciples and talks to them about having thrones of authority in the kingdom. And last week you looked at chapter 5 on the idea of judging people and Paul made it really clear that in this life... We're not to stand in judgment over unbelievers. But here, Paul is looking at something else. Paul is looking ahead at the kingdom of God to come when Jesus returns, when God's people will be the new humanity and will exercise dominion over all of creation, which is exactly how it was created to be before our sin got in the way of everything. And the point is that Paul makes that, well, if you now live in that kingdom, you should be able to sort out your disagreements together. And verse 4 actually shows the foolishness of their situation. He says, therefore, if you have such, sorry, disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? It's a rhetorical question that's kind of got a yes and a no. Like, yes, that is what they're doing. He's pointing out this is crazy. You have a judge who, who is corrupt, who who works on a totally different framework and yet you're taking your concerns to him. And yet, no, this should not be the case. 
because these people don't even live in God's kingdom. And so how is it that you then expect them to sort out the issue you have with your brother or your sister? But it's actually when we get to verse 7 and 8 that we see where this stems from and where it leads them. He says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and and you do this to your brothers and sisters. But why on earth would you rather be wronged? I mean, surely it kind of makes sense to go to court and win the case and if he means that along the way you tread on a few toes, well, so be it. See, that's kind of the way our world thinks too, isn't it? Not that different to the Corinthian mindset. And friends, that's the point. That is how our world works. But it's not how the kingdom of God works. And that's where the Christian lives, in the kingdom of God. So, as someone in the kingdom of God, you would rather be wronged than to wrong your brother or sister. Because you know that you will both stand before God as the ultimate judge. You'd rather be wronged than drag the issue into the secular court because... You want to do everything you can to commend the kingdom of God to others. And everyone knows from the experience of the church that fighting with your brother or sister is hardly a good commendation of grace. And so most simply, they they need to set aside their personal ambition, their ambition to win the argument, and instead, Paul is simply calling them to seek a loving, reasonable solution within the community of their church family. We will disagree with each other. Paul says, let's sort it out as family. Now, I come in here to Trinity Church Modbury and I don't, I don't know what bust-ups you guys have got. I hope nobody's taking each, the other people to court. And we could think about how this situation applies for us. But I said we're going to deal with some meaty things this morning and I think one of the things that I want to acknowledge is actually a really important aspect of how this does not apply. I think it's helpful for us to acknowledge the pain of those who have suffered sexual abuse within the wider church community and then when concerns or allegations have been raised, they've only been handled kind of in-house. Oh, we'll deal with that in the church. Which sadly, so often, has meant they've not been handled at all. And let me say very clearly, what we've just read in 1 Corinthians 6 is not license to sweep such conduct under the carpet. And I just want to give a few very brief reasons why. You see, first, even in challenging the Corinthians to resolve their disputes within the church, there's nothing here that Paul says to imply secrecy. Rather, verse 1 and verse 8, if you go back and consider them again, they seem to indicate an, an open process within the church as a family resolving disputes together. And secondly, Paul is challenging the Corinthians to be willing to set aside their own personal ambition, their self-interested pursuit of gain, even in a corrupt system. He's not addressing a situation where the rights of the vulnerable have been violated and God speaks so clearly about the call for his people to seek justice on behalf of the vulnerable. And thirdly, Paul speaks really clearly in another book, in Romans chapter 13, of the appropriateness of civil authorities. You see, the same Roman legal system that the Corinthians were looking to kind of twist and abuse and and gain selfishly out of, it, it had a legitimate role 
to protect the vulnerable and to punish the wrongdoer. And so, friends, without dwelling further on this point, let me be really clear. When Paul says that disputes should be sorted out within the church community, he's not talking about sweeping things under the carpet, putting skeletons in closets. He's not talking about setting aside the protection of the vulnerable. What he's really doing is challenging them to think through where they live. Because the Corinthians had forgotten the great shift that had taken place for them. Yes, they still lived in the world. I don't know, something like 23 Aphrodite Crescent and Corinth, perhaps. But they're not defined by that address. They are defined as citizens of a new kingdom that is not of this world, as Jesus put it. And that has to bring a radical shift in perspective. A perspective on ethics, on suffering, on our security, on our identity and self-worth, on what we think is important, what we think is pursuing, to win at all costs or to commend the gospel to a watching world. And this is the radical shift that brings us to the most infamous verses of this chapter, uh, the second section in our outline. In fact, for some of you, uh, as we were reading through, as Christine was reading for us, you might have suddenly had the picture of Israel Folau pop into your mind and you struggle to listen to anything else after that. I don't know. So let's turn to it now. Because this helps us think through the next question. What defines you? as we look at verses 9 to 11. Allow me to read it for us again. Or do you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers, inherit the kingdom of God. Now, unless you've been under a rock... I think we'd all acknowledge that the kind of the recent media coverage shows that this presses our cultural buttons, right? But I want, us to, I want to ask you to, to step back from the recent controversy to see how this fits into the point that Paul is making. And, and we'll look at the detail, but then we're going to put it back into that context again. And so first, we need to see the question that, that begins this section in verse 9. It's really, it's really a statement put rhetorically. He says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? You see, it starts, or do you not? It's connecting back to the previous paragraph. It's providing an explanation for why going to court is defeat before we've even started. Why on earth you would rather be wronged than pursue your rights in the world system? You see, Paul is telling the Corinthians, no, don't go to a corrupt judge when that judge is not in the kingdom, serving the same king that you serve. More than that, he's rebuking them. He says to stomp on others' rights, to end up being the one who wrongs them, cheats them for your own benefits, puts you in the category of the wrongdoer, the greedy, the slanderer, the swindler, who will not inherit the kingdom. This is actually a really scathing rebuke of those within the church. But let me read it again. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, of all of the areas of sin listed here, there, I don't think there's any doubt that in 2019 Australia, the controversial one is the mention of homosexuality. So I actually think it's worth us taking a little bit of time to talk about that now. If we can't talk about this topic when we're in 1 Corinthians 6, we'll struggle to find a time to talk about it ever. And because of it being such a contentious topic, I hope you don't mind me talking plainly about things. And so I want to ask, what's on view here when Paul talks about men who have sex with men? Without getting too technical about it, but because a lot of the discussion gets quite technical... I think it's helpful to point out that that phrase, men who have sex with men, is essentially the translation of two words in the original Greek. One referring to the passive and the other the active partner in male homosexual sex. And what I want to explain to you is that this simply means what we mean today by homosexual sex. Not some outdated or or different concept. He might have been writing to a church the other side of the world 2,000 years ago. But he means what we mean. It's just fairly plain. You see, one of the common assumptions is that our culture has progressed so much in the last 2,000 years since Paul put this letter in the post to Corinth. And therefore, we kind of, we tend to think, well, such outdated comments are simply from a bygone era. They don't apply anymore. Now, it is true that times certainly have changed in so many ways. But what Paul's talking about here simply means the same thing that we mean by homosexual sex. I want to paint a picture of the city of Corinth for you, this this city that this church lived in, where they lived and the assumptions that needed to be challenged. You see, Corinth was a hotbed of sexual activity. It was on the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea and and whether by land or by sea, it was kind of the the crossroads for culture and for trade. We know the Olympic Games today, they had the Olympic Games then, but Corinth hosted the Isthmian Games. It was the second biggest international competition in the world. Corinth was a melting pot of all kinds of culture and practices and it was an incredibly promiscuous city. Uh, To the extent that the term was coined... To act like a Corinthian meant to have sex outside of marriage. And if you called a girl, a lady, a Corinthian girl, you were calling her a prostitute. That was the way that the world perceived Corinth. It was an incredibly promiscuous culture. And homosexuality was really common, not just in Corinth, but in the whole Greek and Roman society. It wasn't anything new. 400 years before Paul was writing this letter, the philosopher Plato affirmed same-sex desire and upheld male homosexuality as the most manly of sexual orientations. At around the same time that Paul wrote this letter to Corinth, the poet Juvenal in Rome gives us some insight into Roman sexual mores, which included the concept and the practice of homosexual marriage. Now, it's true, as has often been said in the media over uh, recent years, that Oftentimes, sexual relationships in that society reflect a difference of status, such that uh, free men, the highest status bearers in the society, could freely have sexual relations with, with anyone, with women, with slaves, even with boys. And it's often been claimed that when the Bible speaks against homosexuality, it's speaking against well, something very different to a loving, consensual adult relationship today. But the simple reality is that Paul had other words available to him to talk about those kinds of relationships and he didn't use them. He just used very plain language 
to describe what we mean when we talk about homosexual sex. They knew about lesbian relationships as well. Paul talks about that in Romans 1. They were familiar with the, comment, uh, the, sorry, the concept of committed same-sex relationships as well as casual. You see, for all of the changes since Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he just means what we mean when he talks about sex. And they knew it wasn't new because Paul wasn't presenting a new idea to them. Paul was simply affirming the Old Testament perspective and Jesus' teaching on sexuality. And that's why homosexuality is not singled out. Because the list of sinful behaviour that he puts to the Corinthians is really just a picture of the wider Corinthian society. Whether it's the sexually immoral and the idolaters, we've already seen they were famous for their promiscuity. Idolaters, as a multicultural cosmopolitan city, Corinth was a melting pot of pagan practices. And with all its wealth, its social inequality and a corrupt legal system, well, the mention of of the abuse of others was just rife. The thievery, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, that is to say, you know, those who who slander and and abuse others, swindlers, that kind of theft through semi-legal deception. It was all the norm for Corinthian culture. And they're all terms of identity, a behaviour that characterises people, which came through in verse 11. Such a powerful statement that that is what some of you were. Not that's what some of you did, as if stumbling once puts you outside of the kingdom and beyond hope. Not not what some of you are tempted by, as if same-sex attraction itself is a sin. Rather, that is what some of you were. It's what you were characterised by. Now, to sum the point up, I'd like to read really briefly from... Uh, this book here called The Plausibility Problem uh, by a gentleman named Ed Shaw. Uh, Ed himself is a Christian man who experiences same-sex attraction but is celibate in light of the Bible's teaching on sexuality. I can really recommend this book as a wonderfully personal, incredibly pastful engagement with a really tough issue. I'd also love to uh, encourage you to check out Sam Albury's book, His God, Annie Gay. I happen to see that this one was on uh, the bookstall over there. Incredibly helpful, uh, easy to read and great to work through with non-Christians who might have questions about the topic. But let me read with you um, something of Ed's personal reflections on this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Ed says, Some patterns of behaviour put you outside God's kingdom. There are patterns of behaviour that if you do not repent of them, they show you're not part of God's kingdom. To keep on doing things in this long list of sinful behaviours and homosexual sex being one among many is inconsistent with a claim to be a follower of Jesus. We can't just do what we want to. Now we belong to him, as Paul will go on to argue. And Ed goes on, there have always been homosexual Christians. It's helpful to note that these verses make it clear that there have always been Christians who were, as we would put it today, gay. The early churches were just like our churches today because they were in cities just like our cities today where almost every type of sexual practice was on display. But Christianity changes your identity permanently. Which is why from verse 11, Ed writes, I don't describe myself as gay. 
Verse 11 makes it clear that a Christian's fundamental identity is rooted not in their behaviours or feelings, but in God's behaviours towards them. And as verse 11 said, that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Washed, sanctified, justified. It's so helpful to unpack them together. So picture with me, washed. I don't want you to picture just someone dirty. I want you to picture someone with war paint all over them. See, our sin isn't just something that that pollutes us and stains us, but it's an expression of our rejection of God and our, our independence and rebellion against Him. Our persistence in sin of any kind is like painting ourselves with our war paint that declares ourselves to be in opposition to God. And in Christ, He washes our war paint off. Sanctified. This is a word that ultimately means that our goals are fundamentally reoriented. It's a big word that includes the idea of being made holy, but even that doesn't just mean being made good. But it's about being set apart for a new purpose, given a new goal in life. Those former ways of life were aiming in a very different direction. Faith in Jesus brings a whole new purpose. Not to live for His overthrow, but to live for His glory. Justified. This is all about restoration of relationship. That means that we're declared innocent because the innocent Son of God, Jesus, took upon Himself our guilt on the cross. But even more than that, it's a, it's a profoundly relational term that says that though we were enemies of God, well, now we have been made friends. Those former attitudes, they unavoidably broke our relationship with God, while faith in Jesus restores that relationship. You see, what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, as God speaks to us, it's not new, but it is profoundly countercultural. And it all comes home to the final verse of this passage. And so we're going to bring this home with a much briefer look at the final couple of paragraphs, because in many ways, this is the illustration that Paul makes to apply his point. This is a meaty chapter, I said. We're dealing with some big topics and Paul doesn't let us off the hook as we take it through to the end. But he asks, he makes a very simple statement essentially, whose you are changes who you are. And his underlying point is that it changes all of you. So I want to see the scenario that he describes here. See, Paul's engaging with a really pervasive cultural mindset the Corinthians have. In verse 12, we read it there, they kind of say, I have the right to do anything which sounds kind of familiar for Australia today, right? Well, Paul turns then to the underlying perspective that they have in verse 13. They are thinking, food for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy them both. And their point is that the physical body and its functions, they're not morally significant. If God's going to destroy the physical world, then, well, what we do with our physical stuff doesn't really matter. As long as you've got some sort of spirituality sorted out with God, then you're okay, is kind of how their thinking goes. Which I think, again, rings true for 21st century Adelaide. We kind of have the mindset that if your heart's in the right place, then, 
What you do doesn't really matter. Love is love has been made a really famous slogan. And it captures the idea that it's the spirit of love that counts. What, what physical expression it is given doesn't really matter. The same could be said about how we think about gender. It's how you feel, how you identify in yourself rather than the physicality of your body. Now, it's true that, that this raises incredibly emotional, challenging questions. But fundamentally, it, it comes down to that, that idea of how we relate to our bodies physically. At a more trivial level, I think it comes even through, even in the way that people sort of perceive insignificant wrongdoing. You know, the, I'm sure you've heard of that phrase, oh, they're, not, they're not a bad person. They might have just, I don't know, chucked a sickie or they, they lied on their tax return or they slept with another man's wife, but they're not a bad person. We so often hold our, our conduct at arm's length from who we are. But Paul's response is clear and really direct. He says in verse 13, The body, however, is not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By His power... God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and he will raise us also. And so you can't think that what you do with your body doesn't matter. Because far from destroying the material world, God is going to redeem it and recreate it. Our bodies are significant. Jesus rose from the dead with his to show us how significant our bodies are. And so your body and its functions, they matter to God. Not just because he's some details guy that wants to poke his nose into every little part of your life, but because this is ultimately where you live. If you are a Christian, you live in Christ. Verse 15 paints the picture for us really graphically. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. And here we are on Sunday morning talking about a prostitute. This is confronting stuff because Paul says to us, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you're in Christ. You enjoy a relationship with God now and the hope of eternal life to come because you're united with Christ. So He's with you in everything you do. The exciting things, the mundane things, the public things and the private things. And so Paul uses the example of having sex with a prostitute. It's as if he's saying, imagine the person having sex with a prostitute is taking Jesus along with them. That wouldn't fly, would it? And I'm sure we could think of other examples. Take the scene of an adulterous affair. Imagine Jesus was in the hotel suite with them. Or the gossip over work drinks. Imagine Jesus is sitting at the table there too. Or the pornography being watched in the privacy of the bedroom. Imagine Jesus is sitting there too. Would you think that was okay? Surely never. Friends, Paul is confronting us, God is challenging us that what we do with our bodies matters because we live with Christ. Which is why sexual sin of any kind, is, it's not on its own. It's in a list of a whole variety of behaviours that are not, not consistent with life in the kingdom of God because they're not consistent with Jesus, they're with you. But it is also why sexual sin is in some senses unique. 
For it's God's good design that our bodies matter and that in sex they're uniquely united with another body. Did you see that in verse 16? Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Friends, contrary to what our world says, sex matters. It binds people together. More than that, it's supposed to reflect the bond of faithfulness between God and the church. And that's why it should be an exclusive and a lifelong bond. Now, to to recognise that this is heavy stuff, I thought I'd share with you that my wife and I are trying to teach our four-year-old son about private parts, that they should remain private, not being paraded around in front of everyone as a four-year-old boy is wont to do, and not being spoken of with the same casual attitude as our elbows and our toes. No, at this point, we're just trying to help him understand that they're private. But gradually, we'll help him to understand that they're private because they have a special function to contribute to the unique bonding of bodies in sex. And so sexual sin is in some sex unique. As Paul makes the point really bluntly in verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. That word flee from sexual immorality should bring to mind Joseph in the Old Testament when his boss's wife wanted to have an affair with him. Joseph fled in such a hurry that he he even left her hanging onto his robe and in so doing he exposed himself to, to false accusation, to condemnation, to imprisonment. But he fled because he wanted nothing to do with sexual immorality, even if it cost him his job, his reputation, his freedom. But I think because this is all so challenging, we'll only take it seriously if we see what is at stake. And so verse 18 continues. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now this is hard for us to get our heads around because of how our culture thinks about sex. I mean, how can sex be more against your own body than things that obviously harm your body, like... I don't know, countless things, alcohol abuse or or even at the extreme suicide. How is it that sex is uniquely against your body? Well, as is usually the case when you get to a tricky passage, it's the context around it that helps us to understand the answer. You see, it's not just that sex is against your body because, well, you might get embarrassed or hurt or catch a disease, various other reasons that people tend to be prudish about sex. It's ultimately because... because, uh, This is a uniting with someone. To have sex with someone is to give them part ownership. Even if it's just for the few moments of casual sex, you're giving them owner's rights to your body. Now hear me very clearly. This in no way reduces the importance of consent. No absolutely means no. And yes is the only thing that means yes. But if you say yes you're inviting someone to bind their body to yours. But if you're a Christian, your body already belongs to God. So if you're handing out the keys, then you need to honour Him with the choices of your partner and the circumstances of your union. See, the context that we've read shows us that this is all about whose you are, who you belong to. Back in verse 15, we were reminded that we united with Christ. Your body is really His. 
And then in the last two verses of our chapter, verse 19 reminds us that we belong to the Holy Spirit. He lives in us as His temple. Your body is His home address. And verse 20 reminds us that we belong to God the Father, formerly slaves of sin, now bought by Him to be His, and bought at no small price, but bought with the very death of His only Son. Friends, that is the incredible offer of the gospel. That instead of being enslaved by our sin, covered in our war paint that declares our independence from God and rightly deserving of His judgment, through faith in Jesus, we are offered someone who will call us their own. And He is someone of incredible love and mercy and kindness, who's washed us clean who's given our life new purpose and the unequaled peace of relationship with our Creator. And if you don't know this kind of peace, this kind of purpose and freedom, I'd really encourage you to, to speak with a friend here at church or to catch one of the, the pastors or, or Brian who's been leading. Come and chat with me. We'd love to be able to talk with you more about Jesus and what He's done for us. And friends, if you do know Jesus... We all need to keep being reminded where we live, that we are in the world. Modbury, Golden Grove, Unley, Adelaide City, wherever we might be, we're in the world. But we're not of it, for we've been bought into God's kingdom. And that means that all of us, every part of me, is his my financial choices my ambitions my bodies i've only got one of them my sexuality you are not your own you were bought at a price therefore you have the very great privilege and responsibility to glorify god with your bodies let's pray Loving Father, you are kind to help us to see when we need to be challenged and unsettled. Thank you that through your word you speak to us of your vision for this world, one that is redeemed, washed clean, given purpose. Thank you that you show us your vision for our lives that we might be your friends even more than that, your children, through faith in your Son who gave his life for us. We confess that all too often, all too easily, that we walk, we talk, we think as our neighbours, as the rest of this world who does not know you, walks and talks and thinks. And yet we thank you that you, you break into that and you give us a glimpse of true life, one which is both challenging, and we recognise that from this morning there'll be much for us to ponder and to think about. There may have been difficult issues raised, but Lord, help us equally to see the great freedom that comes with this, that we might work through those issues, have those conversations, uh, deal with those challenges, knowing that you're a God of love and mercy who speaks to us in kindness with a message of hope. 
And so we pray that you would help us to understand what an incredible privilege it is to be one of yours, owned by you, loved by you, and therefore help us to glorify you with all that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.